This is the Financial Coconut, Singapore's first personal finance podcast network. And I'm Timothy Mazier, Editor-in-Chief of Blockhead. Join me and the crew on our weekly Friday segment as we filter out the noise in the crypto space and keep you updated on the ideas that actually matter. This is Blockcast. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, welcome back to another episode of Blockcast. I'm your host, Reggie, a.k.a. your chief financial coconut. And this is Timothy Mazier, Managing Editor at Blockhead. Hi, Mark. I'm founder and CEO of Blockhead. And we have our first guest on the show today. Woohoo! Oh, yeah. Hi, everyone. My name is Annabelle Huang. I'm a managing partner at Amber Group. We're a global crypto financial services provider for institutional and high net worth investors. How many times have you done this introduction? A lot, actually. And believe it or not, within crypto, our services always um, are changing. Um, so we've done multiple different business lines before in the past, but this year we're actually very focused on bringing back uh, our core business, what we've been doing the last five years, uh, focusing around crypto native liquidity solutions, as well as digital wealth management. I mean, I believe after everything that happened last year, the industry is going into a new direction and we're happy to still be around and still be relevant. Um, still be around. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> what has happened in the company so far since the all these things? Yeah, yeah so I think um, it definitely was a um, very challenging time. Um, Q3, Q4 last year, we've been through a lot as a company and as a team. Uh, we've sadly lost one of our co-founders. Uh, but I think in light of a lot of the, the challenges, it's actually what brought us more united as a team. So we are back to sort of the day one startup mentality. We have a leaner team now. We have uh, a very uh, focused area uh, going forward for this year um, and next. And I think that's sort of what's happening within the industry as well. There's a lot of consolidation going on. People are focusing on their home markets, um, their core business. And I think it's actually good for the industry. Yeah, I mean, like, I if, correct me if I'm wrong. My understanding, the core business was was Whalefin, right? That that was the, the main exchange that you guys operated. Because from what I see, also this kind of like aligns very well with like you know like what's happening in the regulatory space or like where MES is looking to go with digital assets and who can or can't invest. <laughs> I've read reports that Whalefin um, is refocusing to focus more on high net worth clients, and I guess the retail. Um, focus has shifted. Is that true? Correct, correct. So we always view Willfin as our front end. So it's a product, uh, it's an app, it's a web portal where our clients can use to access uh, all of our services in one place. Uh, we did uh, have sort of the expansion plan into the retail market uh, starting in 2021, uh, but it's clear to us that um, with everything that has happened in the market, uh, we are more focused uh, around our institutional business, which is uh, really our core bread and butter. And Willfin will continue to be a product um, that helps to service our institutional and high net worth clients. They can access our liquidity. There's still wealth management products. 
Um, we'll push out our investment research, uh, our market commentary through our product as well. Um, so both still exist, but definitely the target audience has shifted. Okay. So yeah, very happy to have you on set with us, right? To to do this episode, right? So every week we bring three stories to the table so that our community can kind of learn as they go along. So uh, please, you know, share with us your commentary and discuss with us, right? So it's very boring. I always talk to them, you know, we, we need more, we need more. We need more, <laughs> well, just wait, like, more you know, this is like, if this experiment with guests doesn't work out, you might yeah. be the first and last. <laughs> No, no pressure hey, here, hey, guys. Hey, hey. No pressure, no pressure, right? I mean, it's nice that we finally have an insider, not just like yeah, not just you know, us, right? Three of us talking, yeah. Just, yeah. Not just talking shit, right? Yeah, 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 like, yeah. Hey, we are entertaining, no, no, okay? No, okay, right. And kind of insightful sometimes. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Half the time we have to cut you out. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> but yeah, so we have uh, another three interesting stories for you guys every week. So Tim, you want to bring us through first one? Yeah, so the 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 big news over the past week has been, you know, the SEC's uh, um, moves in the crypto uh, space, which has spooked markets. Uh, I mean, crypto regulation is now a war zone, it seems. Uh, you know, we talked about Kraken fine, uh, being fined last week, uh, Coinbase uh, CEO tweeting rumors that the SEC may move to ban crypto staking, staking completely. Yeah, staking. Well, now Paxos is uh, in the spotlight with its... Uh, BUSD, uh, you know, stable coin, I think. Is. Allegedly, Circle tipped off the SEC about. Oh, are they yeah, the, so this was the news last allegedly. night, right? Yeah. What does the insider have to say? <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot to unpack, uh, but I would just say that, first of all, I think the SEC is already looking to crypto staking and obviously a lot of the earned products post, I think, uh, Luna in Q2 of last year. It seemed so, like forever, right? Yeah, it seemed like <laughs> it's a like, decade oh my God, ago. I'm still at this. Yeah, yeah but yeah. but that that has been ongoing. So the Kraken settlement it just shows that they've been in touch with the SEC and regulators uh, a few months back. So that's not exactly news to the industry. Uh, on a stablecoin side, um, I guess it's their new focus after maybe the earn and the staking products. It does seem to us a bit far fetched that they would argue that stablecoin is a security. Um, I guess now they're putting the the feared S word on on a lot of the crypto assets, but we haven't been able to look into nuances within maybe the Wells Notice and and a lot of the commu communication between SEC and Paxos. But at least Paxos has the stand that they will vigorously fight back. Um, and from my recent yeah. conversation within the team internally uh, at Paxos, that that seem that seemed to be their stance. So we'll have to see where it unfolds. But it will be unfortunate if uh, at the end of the day. Stable coins will actually be considered a security. Can I know what? Why is it such a problem? Like, why? Why? Why is it like stable coins being considered a security? Such a thing. It will be very restrictive in terms of who can access, mm -hmm. um, who can trade. It's almost like if you're regulating uh, Amazon gift cards as security and can only buy it on um, brokerages. Please don't. Please don't. <laughs> yeah, so I, th I think one interesting thing for me here is that like when you look at the perspective on yield generated through staking versus like interest, right? There is a distinction somewhere in the middle. When you stake your tokens, right? Uh, in support of like, you know, like a blockchain uh, because like, you know, it's used for, for certain utilities, right? And then you earn some yield on top of that. That is a very different perspective from like money markets, for example, where, where you're essentially kind of like earning interest off, you know, like like the cash you deposit in the bank. So I, I think that like the lack of clarity around this issue is what's kind of like troubling the markets, in my opinion. Yeah. Um, but, but I guess on the yeah. Kraken case, it's, yeah. it's different uh, because it's still a sort of centralized staking service. So the users park their funds with Kraken. They're not being transparent about 
how they're staking, are they actually staking? And um, so, you know, the, the both the staking, uh, the validator and the private key of the wallets are within Kraken. So I don't think SEC would necessarily go after if you yourself stake 32 ETH um, and earn your own staking yield. I, I don't think they're going after this bucket, but anything that touches centralized um, services that resembles something like the earn products then then i guess this is this is where they're making that um, do you think you'll see a shift to you know um you know non-custodial kind of staking where like you know you essentially kind of keep your own i i do think so and i I think there's multiple categories of how decentralized you can be the most decentralized way we we talked about you run um, your own node you're a validator yourself the most centralized are probably offered through exchanges but there's also these uh, kind of decentralized liquid staking solutions that kind of falls between the st- spectrum. So that's where it can get tricky because a lot of times um, they are staking on users' behalf, even though you you might keep the private key to the wallet where you receive the staked ETH, but how it's being run, how the validator is being run, um, that, that set of keys is not under your own custody. So mm-hmm. I guess this is where the contested point is. Interesting. Everything is on the spectrum these days. Yeah, it really is. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I had to go there. I had to go there. But yeah. I mean, what are your views on, on the implications that this will have on the wider digital asset space? I mean, everyone is trying to preempt the SEC's moves ahead of time. Um, is this limiting, you know, innovation in the space or will it just, uh, will we just see a move towards more decentralization as, you know, the end game that everyone sees? It's a great question. I think the immediate effect is that uh, well, SEC is not just kind of restricting stablecoin issuance or I guess staking products or earned products. Because of this increased regulatory scrutiny, I think uh, actually a lot of banks in the U.S. are also uh, changing their services or strategy towards uh, how they service to crypto firms. And I think that will translate to difficulty in on-ramp rails uh, for institutional investors. Right now, who is actually injecting new liquidity in the market. It's increasingly difficult. And I guess maybe that is also why SEC has been very, or not just the SEC, but the regulatory body in the U.S. has been quite public and taking a harsh stance on crypto, I think in hopes of limiting um, the scale for now until they figure out what really to do. Um, And I think obviously what happened with FTX and SBF last year was um, quite alarming to them. Um, And I think that triggered a lot of what we're seeing right now. But to my point earlier, this is not new. This is not just happening today. It's been happening. So if, if things are going to get in increasingly decentralized, how is it going to affect your business? But at the end of the day, I think there is still the need for centralized solutions. But it is upon us as a centralized solution service provider to, to go towards a trend that is a lot more transparent, uh, a lot more um I guess, in a traditional finance sense, institutional in what we do, uh, which is also why I think we're, we've been rethinking a lot about our own business models and the products that we are offering going forward. We are launching a um, fully audited and I guess what we, what we can call the, the uh, regulated fund products um, within crypto. So I mean, that takes a lot of work to set up. Um, so you're thinking about the full kind of uh, open-ended mutual fund type offering. So like a crypto, for crypto ETF. Something like that. Uh, it doesn't have to be uh, ETF to begin with, um, but um, something similar with uh, a fund structure, uh, full audit fund admin, um, 
designated trading venue, designated custody provider, insurance policy. So all of this is needed for investors, especially institutional investors, to regain confidence within the space and actually have a regulated venue to do so. So I, I guess, you know, one perspective here, and this could be a very uninformed kind of perspective. Uh, I mean, half the time you're uninformed. You're always uninformed. But uh, would you say that, like, you know, like I would say more clarity around the regulatory uh, issue, right? Whether it's tokens or, or even stable coins are classed as a security or not. Wouldn't that be a good thing for institutional investors? Like, you know, we would then see more money flowing in from like institutions because then they would have more. That crowd just needs assurances, you know, like it's, it's as simple as that. It's, it's yeah. true. Yeah. Every crowd needs assurance. It's just how much. Fair enough. Fair. Fair enough. <laughs> I think it's not even just about assurances, it's about clarity. Because right now yeah. we are in this land of just kind of messy. It's so fragmented. Um, obviously, I think... Uh, a lot of the jurisdictions will follow what the U.S. do, which is why it's so significant. But right now, even, I guess, Singapore or Hong Kong and elsewhere in the world is also exploring its own path to regulate this, this space. So ultimately, we do hope for a very clear uh, regulatory framework globally so we can have a peace of mind. And, and we're here to comply. We're here. Uh, yeah, talk to my compliance team. Are we, we are here. Uh, to do uh, what's needed. And we believe that's better for the industry. But right now, I think it's just unclear what we need to do. So do you feel like the industry has given up trying to replace traditional finance and trying to integrate it? I don't think we're here to replace completely to begin with. Uh, but there's definitely new That's like things. the maxi view, is it? Depends, yeah. on, who yeah, depends the, on who you talk to. Depends on who you talk to. Yeah, yeah. Your yeah, view. Well, your view. Yes. yeah maybe you speak to the, to the 2011 Bitcoin OG uh, crowd. They'll yeah, yeah. offer they're very the different OGs. On the comment section, they're going mad. Like, what are you saying? What are you saying? But I guess the more popular view is that and from an end user perspective, they don't need to care whether it's traditional finance or fintech or Web3 or crypto finance. I think... I think it depends on what provides them the products and the services they need, whether it's yield or it is um, social or gaming or anything. And then because of that, there's always going to be, again, it's on a spectrum again, right? There is going to be centralized players. And because there's need for that, there's also going to be fully decentralized solutions because, because there's also going to be a need for that. No, but it's the same idea, right? Like you, you guys run a website, you got centralized information and then there are people yeah, that yeah. run forums, yeah. right? And it's like yeah. everybody's just saying yeah. their thing. So depending on like, what's your tea, like what's your cup of tea and then yeah. you just take it from there. Like, I guess one question that I would have if I was listening to this podcast, right? So if I wasn't working in say in TradFi or like DeFi or part of the, the financial institution framework that that is looking at this space at the moment, right? Give me a reason to care. Right. And the reason why I say that, right, is because like ultimately at the end of the day, when you want to shift policy and regulation, right, from a fiscal level, right, the politics actually matter on a certain level. You know, so even though these worlds don't really collide, are kind of like they, we see it as separate with institutional finance versus kind of like retail. Ultimately, to kind of move policy, right, you know, that, that the optics of it also kind of matters. And I think that going to be interesting for some members of the audience, right, is, you know, where does the retail crowd kind of fit into this movement? at least what the Singapore government wants to kind of do is like, oh, let's be excited about the innovation behind blockchain, right? You're in the space because you want to make like that 10x, 100x, right? So to really get people kind of like excited about, you know, like that change, right? I, I think it's in part like, and I'm not saying it's impossible, that's, it's a communications thing as well. I'm seeing Pofma yeah. come at you, you know? Yeah. So I, I said I'll touch on it a little it's bit, like but coming, you know, that, that is... It's like, I see a minister <laughs> typing. It's like, should I? Should I? Um, yeah, question I have in my mind is like, you know, like how does this kind of impact like just retail investing, you know, um, yeah, broadly? 
I don't know. Like, what do you guys think? Are we off topic? No, no, no. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I think this relates to um, we 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 talked in the introduction about about Amber's uh, shift in focus uh, away from retail. But yeah, maybe you could just go a little bit more into why you guys have adopted that approach or or the the, the trends in the space that you're seeing and um, uh, why why is it leading in that direction? Well, I think first of all, the honest answer is that because it's actually quite, um, because of the regulatory pressure, it is quite difficult to even service the retail investors whether it's in the U.S. Um, or I guess in Singapore, where it's clearly stated that we cannot. So in my own personal opinion, I think it is unfortunate because we did build our products uh, and our services so that we can bridge um, this gap and, and bring the institutional grade services to anyone um, who wants to access it. But from the other perspective, I also understand, right, because there there's still so much, um, so many bad actors in the space of so retail uh, unfortunately, get hurt. Um, institutions get hurt too. But I guess you know, with uh, the consumer protection side, it, it's very needed. Um, so, which is why we also understand that maybe this is not the best timing for it. We still need to find a clear path forward. So maybe uh, in the next cycle, uh, we'll be able to have a clear regulatory framework and filter out all the bad actors, so um, retailers can actually safely invest in this space but we might not be there yet so, so what are some frameworks that you guys are hoping for then like within within your organization such that we can get retail to participate in a safe environment yeah i guess <laughs> sounds um, so even paternal s- uh, safe environment it's yeah. safety is very relative it's yeah, okay yes very exactly. relative yes. Yeah. please go for it yeah, yeah. <laughs> i yeah. think maybe even something similar to what um what's being proposed out of hong kong at the moment at least retail can have some sort of exposure to the market by purchasing ETFs from approved or regulated providers, or I guess out of the US depends on ultimately where it ends up. Maybe even if everything is a security, right, you can still have access to brokerage accounts that can invest in crypto. But what FTX showed us at least is that if it's not clearly regulated, um, they'll, they claim that they are, but they're not. Um, there are too many temptations in the market for for bad actors to act. So it has to be from a policy or regulatory standpoint that restrict it. You cannot count on human nature to not do. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost fifty pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I guess it's also, I mean, for me, it's interesting from a culture standpoint. It feels like every other person and everybody in Hong Kong trades, everybody in Hong Kong I meet kind of invest stocks. They have that base culture already where, you know, most people are kind of involved in the financial markets in one way yeah. or another. I was talking right? to one of these professors from SMU. He's from Hong Kong. Yeah. 
I was talking to him about like um like investing, trading, like trying to get him on the show. And he was like, nah, Singapore doesn't have the trading culture. He's just like very slightly snobbish, <laughs> like borderline. I'm saying you, uh, yes, it's you. Right? So it's slightly borderline snob. I was like, mm, yeah, Singapore don't trade. La. But, it, it's quite know, true, yeah. but, but I yeah, get the yeah. point. I, I get what you're saying. I know I mean, what you're saying. Yes, of yes, course, yes, la, but yes. you know, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But Annabelle, you spent part of your career in Hong Kong, right? So maybe you have some observations on that, uh, on the differences in culture between, you know, Hong Kong and Singapore. Yeah. So um, actually, we were headquartered in Hong Kong before we moved to Singapore. Um, and I've spent uh, the, the early part of my career in New York. Um, so I guess I do see uh, out of the U.S., right, because there's a lot of access, uh, accessible venues that people um, generally do have a Robin Hood where they can trade um, stocks and now also crypto uh, in Hong Kong. I think because uh, of the Hong Kong stock exchange, the stock market is also quite um, very liquid. Um, and I think that's also kind of the bridge between a lot of the companies between mainland and US. And um, so I think generally that is a culture where people tend to look at this a lot more. I haven't been in Singapore for long, but I do also have the feeling where you know people are not generally excited about Things are trading on SGX at the moment. Oh, so, no, yeah, SGX. <laughs> yeah, first, man. So, maybe that's, that's Ever part since of the they reason. Lost that United listing, right? From yeah. a decade ago. Yesterday, they mentioned in, at the budget announcement, right? So, they're talking about this innovation. I don't know what the name of the fund is. Uh, it's like an innovation scheme or fund that government wants to kind of support innovative. Uh, it's businesses. already around. It's under the Marseille, yeah, but, I think. But yeah. I, I think that there were, there were some changes to it or like the kind of companies that they were mentioned in the speech. So one of them was more East Holdings. Uh, essentially, like they, they, I think they, they do like wind farms uh, of China, uh, some parts of Asia. I am kind of simplifying it. Like, okay, they do a lot more than that. Like, right? You're but, not kind of, you but, are simplifying but it. The point I'm trying to make <laughs> yes, here is yes. that I couldn't help thinking about whether this also covers like, you know, this current topic, you know, like does that innovation also stretch out to like what kind of like, you know, like, um, if we were to kind of put, you know, digital assets or crypto under this bucket, you know? So point I'm trying to make here, right, is that when we look at this part of like the narrative where how Singapore is trying to position itself as a, you know, digital asset hub, crypto hub, blockchain innovation hub, I think they need, need, they need to kind of just pick one and then try to write with that. So that, that clarity is, is, is something that I think is a bit missing as well, because, you know, there, there is some confusion. Are we trying to be a cryptocurrency hub? Or is it going to be a, a, a blockchain hub? I think that there's some differences here. Yeah. Why is there confusion? I thought it's quite clear at this point in time that we don't want the markets to trade, you know, but we want the innovation. No, to but then at the same time, you here. see MES giving all these licenses to kind of like payment service providers. So like I'm, I'm thinking that like what MES is doing, which is great, you know, it's great. I mean, like if in the span of like six months, I think that 12 licenses being like being handed out, you know, so what, what they are doing on that front of the, of the, they're handing out licenses on one hand, payment licenses, but on the other hand, you know, like it's, it seems that they want to focus on the, the other aspects of like blockchain innovation. Yeah, so bro. It's about 17% corporate tax. La, okay. That's the, yeah, <laughs> I mean, fair, right? Yeah. We bring companies in so that we give them yeah. a space to develop and do their thing, bring their followers, do their shenanigans. Yeah. And we want corporate oh, tax, fine. right? So that yeah. we can continue to run the country. Simple, right? Vote for me. Okay. I actually <laughs> wanted to ask based on, okay. based on what, was, what was, what was being like, what, what you were talking about. Yeah. It's like, how, how is all these institutional money kind of like being allocated? at this point in time in the investment space? Is it directly into projects? Are we building companies or, you know, what's going on? Because I think a lot of retail investors or people that are kind of like looking around 
everybody has this idea like, oh, insti money, insti money. It's like, oh, what the hell is the insti doing, right? Like, where's money actually going to? It's a great question. I think back in 2021, we all thought there's influx of institutional money. It did come, I guess, a lot of them were incentivized to buy Bitcoin. There was obviously this hype um, and following a lot of the um, so Elon Musk of the world um, allocating corporate treasury into Bitcoin, um, Michael Saylor uh, of the world. And then there is that initial um, liquidity injection. But then I think what followed after that is actually kind of rehypothecation within the industry. People are levered up, barring, you know, recycle all these collateral, which led to the collapse in 2022. So if you really look into how institu institutions have participated, uh, I think a lot of them, uh, at least from what we've seen, um, yes, buying Bitcoin and to a lesser extent Ethereum. Yes, that's some of them. Um, and that's actually maybe more for the high net worth individuals and family offices. Uh, they're also looking to invest in primary markets. So a lot of them um, either directly set up um, VC funds or LP'd into other uh, VC funds that invest across the space. Uh, but that also has um, died down quite a bit. It's quite difficult for a new fund to raise at the moment. Some of them, maybe the more sophisticated ones, probably also do direct investment into crypto projects already. Um, but I think that's not to a scale where we would have hoped uh, or the scope that is needed for real institutional adoption. We're talking um, about maybe at this point, hedge funds um, trading crypto, uh, but not to a point where asset managers are actually allocating meaningful capital into the space. Yeah, and if there's no capital, then there'll be no new price, right? The other thing here also is that like, I mean, you have BlackRock, right? They think about a couple of months ago, they just, there was a media release about how they made Bitcoin an eligible investment in their main fund, right? But I guess one thing to kind of, I guess, point out to the listeners as well, right? I, creating a, a vehicle for like, you know, like capital inflows to a certain product doesn't actually kind of like mean an endorsement of the space. Right. It's just a business opportunity, in my opinion. If you look at same company, right? I think like Larry Fink, uh, five years ago, Bitcoin is just an index for like money laundering. Five years later, position change. You know, there's no value judgment I'm making here. It's just, it is what it is. And like, you know, like it's, it's really about the business opportunity, creating a vehicle for the money to flow in. That's what it is to me, at least. So I, I don't but know. But they need to be very careful right? yeah. as, um, as an institution, they have fiduciary duty to their LPs and, in light of everything that's happening with the regulatory kind of spotlight onto the space, it's um, difficult to see them making any real moves at this point, mm. which is why we've been talking about a lot, right, about clarity in the space. I think that's what it's going to give them the comfort or the go ahead to do so. And I think it takes a bit of market um, timing or price action as well. It's sad by people only pay attention when really Bitcoin goes up, even though Right now, it's much better purchasing um, entry point. Actually, understand from their perspective, they're not incentivized to be the first, but they're incentivized to do the right thing. Um, and you know, do be, the right thing. Yeah, like, what be, is the right thing? The right thing right is there. the consensus of the market, mm -hmm. right? So, fair, fair, fair. I get it. I get it. Cool. What else is needed for 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 these inflows to happen apart from regulatory clarity? Uh, regulatory clarity, I guess, liquidity itself. Um, so obviously, yes, who's going to pump? Who's going to yeah, pump? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Is the U.S. Uh, what is the macro, I guess, economic policy that's coming out of it, coming out of Japan, EU, or even China? Uh, ultimately, we need uh, liquidity, and I guess um, last year it was not just a bad year for crypto; it's bad for for tech, for 
um, for real estate, for, for a lot of the sectors. So investors are very careful where they're allocating money. Um, and to be fair, right, we've seen a lot of redemption from crypto into uh, dollar fiat and parking into treasury. And I cannot argue that that's a bad trade. Um, I would clip four or five percent a year um, with just zero risk. Guys. Yeah. So T bills. Like, <laughs> it's no longer it? oversubscribed, by the way. The Singapore T bills. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's no longer oversubscribed. Yeah. It's interesting. No, but I, I, I completely agree with, uh, with Annabelle. I mean, I, I reckon this, this is very similar to some of the of the conversations that we're having um, about the, bro- the broader kind of um, macro. Uh, conditions, right? The financial markets, stocks. Just we're talking about interest rates. We're going to go last week, and I think this is quite a similar conversation because that impacts liquidity, right? Yeah. yeah so you're it, seeing all I mean, crypto just, traders yeah. now following CPI prints, <laughs> following reading Fed minutes. <laughs> so much I feel for like decentralized. I'm back in my old yeah. job, right? <laughs> so, yeah. And now I have to stay up late to, yeah, to watch yeah, that. Yeah. Uh, so it, it is quite interesting. I, how I feel this whole thing is just really about managing expectations. You know, <laughs> it's true, right? Like it's like you know the same thing with the SEC, and then like you know like regulatory clarity. It's also about like okay, look, inflation rates were like eight or nine percent at one time, and then like okay, our target's two percent, right? But at the same time, like you know like. It's probably, you know, if they were just to manage our expectations and say, look, okay, getting it back to 2% is probably, you know, um, <clears throat> it's going to be tough, right? Maybe you can, you know, like 4%, we're going to kind of like hit a happy medium right there, you know, something like that, right? And I think that that would help. So it, even like, you know, like I, I think that that the same narrative that we saw yesterday with the budget announcement, it's about, look, like getting, relying on fiscal support to 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 combat, like to kind of like, you know, reduce inflation, right? It's not going to be sustainable in the long term right so i think it's just about managing expectations certain level yeah okay so that brings us to the story of the day which is this uh, race between hong kong and singapore which we kind of touch a little bit on the people you know then the, the investors in the space but i think between hong kong and singapore there's been a lot of rivalry like huh? <laughs> it's not just today it's been it's been a while and um, i would argue for the past few years it's probably quite serious and quite important right so both hong kong and singapore are trying to become crypto hubs okay in their own light right in in different ways that they're doing what they do so i think the the discussion that we want to kind of push forward today is to understand like where are they and is hong kong actually now more progressive than than singapore you know because for a period of time singapore was like the beacon right like crypto hub and then now it's like uh tarik, ah, tarik, ah. <laughs> it's like okay we can do this but maybe not that and now hong kong's like yeah we will do this right so so what is the situation here what is your read on on the space are we seeing innovation by extension then slip away you know, because over there now it's like more welcoming, more progressive in that and, sense. And there's also yeah. Dubai, which mm. just uh, released their policy document last week. So it's 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 not just Singapore versus Hong Kong, but like the the two Asian hubs against the Middle East. Yeah, no, it's definitely very topical. I think uh, Hong Kong, obviously, within the last three years during COVID, I think it definitely felt the pain of losing capital and talent to elsewhere, uh, and I guess most significantly to Singapore. And Singapore has positioned itself in a very well during that period. I mean, we moved here uh, in 2021 because of that also um, from Hong Kong. So I think we're one of the examples. Are, are um, you moving away? Well, not, not, <laughs> not, yet, not yet, but we're still there. We're still in Hong Kong. Uh, we still have a pretty big office there. We don't see ourselves moving headquarters again anytime soon, but Hong Kong's definitely been more topical this year. Um, we're lucky that we still have a big local team to be able to be in touch with what's happening on the ground and definitely uh, want to be part of the the first batch that uh, that obtained 
um, the VASP license. Um, but I think at this point, I personally at least take a lot of these things with a grain of salt. Obviously, it comes down to what they actually comes come out with, how it's been executed. And please keep in mind, policies change. Right? We've seen that with the U.S., with arguably Singapore as well. So it depends on whether Hong Kong wants to start being, I guess, very vast and then uh, restrict down more down the line, or maybe it's other uh, jurisdictions where they want to be very strict to begin with. Um, but to your point earlier, it's always about having that incentives for corporates to come and set up and hire people and for economic activities versus uh, the consumer pr protection that you want to bring. So I think both uh, Hong Kong and Singapore are um, are very actively managing that at the moment. If anything, we are actually glad to see a little bit of competition going on. So hopefully that pushes both places to be um, more progressive. So yeah, so we. What continue. does progressive mean then in your dictionary? Progressive means for this. Yeah, yeah. In my opinion, means that um, first thinking about digital asset and crypto uh, in a way that that doesn't need to fit completely within a security or a commodity or uh, FX per se. Um, and having that ability to actually understand what we're doing within the space, I think that's actually quite difficult and be able to catch up with everything that's happening. So I think from our experiences with Singapore, uh, with MAS, uh, and with SFC, we are at least confident that is the, the direction that is happening. Um, and progressive also means um, open access, well, to the extent that they can be open um, to an, anyone that wants to participate. So maybe that's something that want to eventually do down the line, or maybe that's something they're allowing day one. Um, but like we discussed earlier, crypto is not just for institutions. At the end of the day, all of us personally wants to be a part of it. You know, policies can change. You can change your mind. You're making the best decisions. And this this includes like, you know, regulators based on the available information. So I think that it's too early to say, you know, because right now it's just really about the execution point. It feels definitely that Hong Kong has gotten a bit more clarity in where they want to go with this. You know, I like how they've, you know, uh, managed to carve out a niche for retail investors. So we're not there yet with Singapore, um, but I suspect that it will come. Yeah, so that's also why competition is good because you know you see Hong Kong doing it, Singapore will do it too. And and, and to go back to yeah. Dubai, like yeah. like the, the I love how you're just holding on to Dubai. <laughs> no, I mean it's like, it's, no one wants to say okay, no, let, let's stop there. <laughs> no, yeah. because go for it. Everyone go from, for it. a lot of industry players moved from Hong Kong to Singapore um, in the past three years, but they have since left for places like Dubai. Um, and and Dubai released like yeah, yeah the regulatory document, which is very clear. If you want to operate a crypto exchange, these are the boxes you need to take. And it's all laid out then document. You just need, if you meet it, you get it. It's And, and there's like a time frame and all that kind of stuff. But for Singapore, it's it's a bit more uh, murky. Like, you're, you're, at least to me, maybe you have a bit more insight into this process. Um, but it, it seems like, you know, the, the, the time frame that you need to, from, from applying to getting the license could, could be anywhere from, you know, uh, three months to, to, to two years. And some, some companies are still waiting. Or um, never, yeah. you know, after FTX, and I think a lot of the publicity around it uh, here in Singapore specifically. Um, I'm not sure if there will be any new licenses approved anytime soon, which is um, also why I think we we were lucky. Um, we're glad, very glad to be able to um, obtain the license, or uh, we're able to uh, fully acquire 
Sparrow, which is one of the regulated entities here in Singapore. Um, so hopefully that gives us a bit of window to be able to provide the crypto services that institutional players need here out of Singapore. And I think to your point, Dubai definitely has been also very open in terms of its policies. But I think if you really compare uh, Dubai to maybe the US or Hong Kong and Singapore, it's still not seen as the most, I guess, you know, from an institutional investor perspective, mm-hmm. they'd rather work uh, with maybe companies or funds that are based out of Singapore versus Dubai. So from the times I've been to Dubai, especially around the crypto conferences there, it does seem like uh, even within the crypto native segment and um, and the access to uh, the projects you'll get from there, uh, it's not as com- uh, comparable as mm-hmm. you get here. So they're growing their ecosystem again, also for to bring talent and bring capital within the space. Right? I think it, all the governments are trying to do the same thing. Um, so, like you said, it depends on how they eventually separate the line of encouraging people to come and but um, having regulated space. Nice, nice. So Dubai not important. <laughs> no, no, no. It has capital, which is as liquidity, which is what's important in the market. Yeah, but right that's now. the only thing going for it. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I do agree. You think so? <laughs> I, so I don't know. I don't know. So, but yeah, but that's that's really, really interesting. Very cool. So what, what are your plans then? Like for Sparrow, you guys, you guys acquire them. What yeah, is the right now, it's still mm-hmm. business as, as usual. No integration, but, no further integration. Uh, we, we are talking about integration, obviously, internally, uh, but they remain as a separate entity for now, continue to service the clients. Uh, and it gives us access to, to Sparrow in the sense that um, our Singapore-based clients, can we can now onboard them through Sparrow and go through the Sparrow side of services. But we're integrating them so that eventually we're one team and... I think that gives us a leeway into setting up a lot of um, institutional services and, and products um, that are available in Singapore because right now there there is a gap. What is, what is the gap? The gap is I think most of the DPT license holders, uh, they're actually payment service providers, um, but we are more focused around wealth management. So the types of product is different. We're not just here to maybe on off ramp. Uh, of course we can do that. But we want to be able to bring a lot more. And I think it's safe to say that most investors in the space are looking for yield. Um, they have different risk preferences, but ultimately, right, they you want to grow your wealth um, in a safe way. So um, I think that's a big distinction between us and maybe the other providers. Yeah, I mean, Mark already said, right? No one cares about innovation. <laughs> right? It's all about the profit. It's all about the money, right? <laughs> I mean, like, you know, I, I, speak, I speak from the heart, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, Who cares about innovation? It's so boring, so lame. I, actually, right? I have a question. I'm just very curious as to, you know, like when Tamasek makes an investment, uh, you know, in the Amber Group, right? Like, do you have any inkling as to, I mean, obviously they would probably have a view, you know, as to why they are kind of like make, like investing in Amber. I guess it would be interesting to kind of understand that part, whether you've, you've got a sense as to their interest in this space, right? And, and you know, because you, as you've, you've mentioned, um, this is wealth management portion that's currently not being covered. Like, you know, is that something that they, yeah, we've been in touch with them since, I guess, early 2021. And obviously the due diligence process took mm-hmm. a long time, as mm-hmm. it should. I can't speak for their investment team, but I think they, they do see us as the leading um, provider globally, if not Asia, for not just the crypto native solutions, but also within the wealth management space. Um, so I think that's definitely what they're looking for. Um, and I guess within their 
mandate. Um, I think at that point, they're not really allowed to invest in tokens yep. or, you know, the yep. staff saves of the likes. Yep. Um, there are not that many companies are racing on, on equity. Um, so I guess they didn't have that many options. I think since then, they've looked at investing in the space very differently, um, setting up um, maybe other arms um, that can invest in early Web3 token projects or, or whatnot. But I think I hate to bring up again, right? But obviously with their investment into FTX as well, I think that publicity um, likely means there's going to be some adjustments within their blockchain strategy. Um, but yeah, but for us, I mean, we're we're still business as usual and hopefully we can deliver the return that they're looking for. Thanks for, for answering that. I think I think that my, the reason why I asked also is because it's just a question on, you know, just the audience, the general Singapore audience, right? Like um, when they see like high profile investments from Tomasic in this space, they they're also they also want to kind of like I guess understand um, a bit more about the rationale because these things aren't shared publicly. Yeah. True. So so I think that that was that was very insightful. Thanks. Yeah, yeah. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for fifty to eighty percent less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. So having said all that, uh, just to wrap up, um, how, well, what are you guys doing to differentiate yourself from your competitors? I mean, and, and also who do you see as your competitors? Well, I guess the second question is is interesting where a lot of the platforms that we consider as competitors are no longer around, <laughs> which speaks to our competitive advantage. <laughs> it's true, right? I That's think so being able PR, to... but so well said, right? Like they all die already. Let <laughs> us. That's the real... Sorry. <laughs> But, but I mean, it's a difficult fee, right, to be able to navigate all these Black Swan events over the years and having that risk management expertise. And I think just as a team of the tenacity that we we have um, and that confidence that we can weather through anything and be able to continue to build right products, um, that's actually difficult in itself. Um, so I think that's definitely ha- having a very strong team, um, being able to pivot or being able to navigate or focus and, and shift our strategy as the, as the market goes. I think um, that's um, maybe our core competitiveness. And of course, outside of, uh, I think, given our DNA uh, in traditional institutional finance space, uh, hopefully that also gives us an edge into providing a lot of the digital wealth management products going forward. Um, and we're not afraid of the hard work um, when it comes to compliance or regulation um, so I think we have what it takes to really survive, um, and, and thrive in the long term. Um, and having that longer term view itself is also maybe rare in industry, but yeah. we, we really believe that. Yeah. Yeah. I am afraid of LNC. They always give me a lot of problems. <laughs> it's like I say in the content, like this one is under legal compliance. They cannot, this one must cut, must cut. <laughs> So I am afraid, but but thank you. Thanks for thanks for sharing your views. So great. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Blockcast. And we hope you learned some interesting things. We have a Reddit already now, right? So the Financial Coconut has a subreddit. Go there. We'll moderate it a little bit better. And yeah, check out all the articles on today's episode on blockhead.co. 
Hey Coconuts, so yes, uh, I hope you enjoyed this new show that we're building together with the team at Blockhead and uh, the goal is very clear, right? We're not here to shield any token or be a cheerleader for any project but we feel that there's a lot of development that's going on in this space that we could cover and continue to be a little bit smarter um, as investors. I mean, eventually you tune in every week to a financial podcast network so that you can be smarter with your investments and if it so happened, this is something that you're looking at the crypto space, Web3, Metaverse, all these kind of stuff then that is where we're trying to cover but not from the angle of like this is good that is bad but really trying to see it from like what is happening how is it developing and I hope you find this useful and interesting right so if you want to continue to get more coverage around the crypto space check out blockhead.co and then we will see you next week